This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. Almost nobody has consistently been able to beat the market over time. And even fund managers who have beat the market for a number of years, on average, tend to what's called revert to the mean, which means that even the fund managers that have outperformed, eventually they go back to average. To be happy and to help people. I think that's the point of life. And if you spend every single dollar to your name every single day of your life, I don't think it serves those two goals. You know, I think having a plan, which is spending most of your money and saving a little bit, makes you wealthy later, and it also makes you happier today. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill. And today we're bringing you another Best of MKM episode. Yes, this week I'll be sharing two conversations I had around index funds. We get a lot of questions around index funds. We're going to talk about how they make new investors into millionaires. My first interview is from 2020 with the host of the Afford Anything podcast, Paula Pant. And the second index fund evangelist interview is from Jeremy Schneider of Personal Finance Club fame. He and I chatted last year, and I think you're really going to enjoy these conversations. I trust and I value the opinion of these two personal finance experts. And if you've been wondering about the why behind index funds, these two conversations will help you understand and hopefully take some action. Without further delay, let's jump into today's show. I received a question on Instagram at Andy Hill MKM from Beth, and here it is. Hey, Andy, I heard you and other podcasters talking about index funds being a good investment option. I'm looking into my 401k that I have at work. Can you help me understand why index funds are a good option to consider? Thanks, Beth. Short and sweet. So Beth, thank you so much for reaching out on Instagram. Today, I have a very special guest that's going to help me answer Beth's question. I am happy to be joined by award-winning personal finance blogger and podcaster, Paula Pant. And for those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, you may remember we interviewed Paula back in 2017 about how she achieved financial independence through real estate. And you can find that episode at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session six. And I am glad to have her back, but not only back on the show, but in person. Paula, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for welcoming me not only onto the show, but into your home. Absolutely. And we've had fun over the past 24 hours, hanging out, talking money and hanging out with friends. So it's been good. Absolutely. So let's help Beth answer this question. So I guess I'll start. Why do you like index funds? Before I ever learned about index funds, I first learned about mutual funds. And technically, for the people who are who are really getting nerdy out there, technically index funds are what's called index mutual funds. So a mutual fund is a basket of funds that has a bunch of stocks inside of it. Rather than just investing in Coca-Cola or Marathon Oil or Nike or Reebok or Tesla, you've got a huge number of stocks inside of a fund. And that means that 
you have diversification. You know, if Marathon Oil completely crashes, that's totally fine because you've got all of the other stocks in that fund to counterbalance it. So that's what's great about mutual funds. But the problem with a mutual fund is that you have a fund manager who hand selects the funds that are inside of a mutual fund basket. And over time, that fund manager, you know, they, they charge a lot of money. They make a lot of trades, which incur their own internal transaction costs. And what studies have found is that actively managed mutual funds, so fund managers who choose which stocks go inside of a fund, statistically speaking, do not do any better than this alternative that's called an index fund. And an index fund is purely a mutual fund that is passively managed, which means that there's no fund manager selecting stocks. All it does is it follows a broad market index. So it might follow the S&P 500. It might follow the the Russell. It, you know, it follows some sort of broad market index. It might be a total stock market index, a total international. And it's going to do as well or as poorly as the index that it tracks. No better, no worse. Right. So if you talk about something like the S&P 500 over whatever, 100 years, 90 years, Mm -hmm. going up at a rate of like on an average 10%, right? Something like that. That's something that Beth might be able to trust or look at and say, hey, this is the potential, not necessarily what it's been in the past, but where it might go in the future too, as an index to consider. Exactly, exactly. You know, we never know how any index is going to do in the future, but we do have historical data. And so you can look at large cap index, small cap index, emerging markets index. But the beauty of index funds is that you don't have all of the costs of having a fund manager or a team of fund managers. You don't have all of the churn costs and the transaction costs that come with buying and selling stocks inside of the fund. And like I said, historically speaking, index funds typically outperform actively managed funds, particularly once all of those fees are taken into account. Yeah, and there's been some public experiments of that in the past, too. I think I've read an article or a happening that happened with Warren Buffett where he made a bet with some hedge fund guys that said, hey, over the next 10 years, mm-hmm. I believe that if I just bought a regular index fund versus your buying and selling action, you know, we're going to, or the index funds are going to win out. And they made that bet. And it was, I think it was a million dollar bet. Did you hear about this? No, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, he made this million dollar bet and lo and behold, over 10 years, he ended up winning the bet because nice. there was so much action back and forth of the buying and selling that index funds won the day, which is crazy. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. I've also heard that Warren Buffett instructed his children, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's leaving them some money, not his entire fortune. He's giving away most of it, but he instructed his children to just stick to index fund investing. Because it's simple. And one point that you made too, is that there are not as many fees or costs associated with it. So if Beth were to look at her 401k, what are the fees that she should maybe be looking for when she's comparing index mutual funds versus mutual funds, or I guess any other fund? So there's a fee that's referred to as the expense ratio. And if you look up any fund, you'll you'll be able to see the little line item that says expense ratio. The expense ratio that you'll see on index funds as an aggregate is significantly cheaper than the expense ratios that you'll see on an actively managed mutual fund. So for example, and I'm just pulling some hypothetical numbers for illustrative purposes, you might look at a broad market index fund that has an expense ratio 
ratio of 0.3% or 0.2%. By contrast, you might look at an actively managed mutual fund that has an expense ratio of 0.8 or 9% or even 1%. And that may not sound huge, but if you imagine your returns being chipped away by 1%, compounding over time, as compared with your returns being chipped away by half a percent compounding over time, well, that adds up. Absolutely. And you talked a little bit about the multiple different indexes that there are. Why is it important to consider some sort of diversification in your portfolio when you're talking about investing or index fund investing for that matter? Mm. When people talk about diversification, what, what people are typically looking for is what's called low correlation assets. And what that means is that if one asset moves in in some direction, up or down, you want another asset that doesn't do the same thing. Because if all of your assets move in the same direction at the same time, then then you don't have diversification. And so the most obvious example is stocks and bonds. Typically, and, and the year 2020 has been different, <laughs> but typically when stocks as a whole go up, bonds tend to go down and vice versa. They tend to move inverse to one another. And as a result, oftentimes people layer bonds into their portfolio in order to smooth out that volatility, smooth out that ride. Some things that go up when other things go down. And you can do the same thing inside of, if if you look at stocks or as they're known, equities, if you look at different types of equity index funds, there are different kinds that aren't going to relate to one another. So the way that an international fund performs is not necessarily going to be the way that a U.S. fund performs. Now, they will be similar because there are, you know, there are U.S. companies. companies, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. exactly, because we live in a global world. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there are many U.S. companies like Coca-Cola or Nike or Tesla that do business overseas. And the the fate of the world is, is intertwined. So absolutely, you're, you're going to see some similarities between them, but not perfectly. You know, there are going to be differences. Similarly, small cap stocks, which are the smaller companies, they are going to perform differently than the larger companies. By having a, a mix of these different types of assets, you know, you, you get some things that zig when others zag. Yeah, that's a good point, too. So you talked about you not only get the diversification by being in the index fund itself because you're owning 500 or thousands of companies, but if you look at diversification amongst the classes themselves, so maybe small cap, international bonds, you are multiplying the diversification, right? And you're you're making things a little bit more comfortable. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so index funds, low fees, very good diversification. It just sounds like a great package. What's the negative side or what's the con of index funds that we're not looking at? Because I think both you and I are like, yeah, makes sense, right? But what are people saying or why is there, uh, I guess, any call against index funds? Well, there are people who try to beat the market. So this is this is referred to as seeking alpha. There's a group of people who believe that they can do better than the overall market if they just apply their brain to it a little bit. And they do some research and they pick the winning stocks and they time it just right. And it can be tempting to want to believe that. It can be tempting to to indulge in the cognitive biases that tell you that you're more informed or you're a better decision maker. But the the truth of the matter is that nobody or almost nobody has 
consistently been able to beat the market over time. And even fund managers who have beat the market for a number of years on average, tend to what's called revert to the mean, which means that even the fund managers that have outperformed, eventually they go back to average. Of course, yes, you can cherry pick one or two star players. We've talked about Warren Buffett, but that is a concept that's called survivorship bias. Nobody knows in advance who the next Warren Buffett is going to be. We only know that in hindsight. Yeah, you think about it, it seems to work really well. You know, we're talking about folks like Beth that are looking at their 401k, they're just looking for something simple and easy to do so that they can invest for the future. I think there's a lot of people out there that are just like, hey, what can I do that's smart and intelligent and get going with my investing instead of trying to beat the market or try to seek alpha like you're talking about? So it sounds like index funds are a pretty good tool for the masses. And, And even folks that, like you and I, who like to dive into the details still choose them Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to do that. I mean, have you ever thought of that in your spot where you know so much about investing, yet you still decide to go the simple route? Yeah, well, I think what it is, is as you learn more and more about investing, you recognize fallacies in thinking. You know, I I mentioned confirmation bias or survivorship bias, overconfidence, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Like you, you recognize that there are all of these cognitive biases that people... Uh, buy into that people delude themselves. And as you learn more and more about investing, you, you begin to see examples of that play out. I think another way of saying it is as you learn more about a topic, you gain enough knowledge to understand what you do not know. As you and I both learn more about investing, we have gained enough knowledge to recognize that we do not know how to predict the future. We do not know which, uh, you know, of all of the stocks that are available right now, we don't know which one is going to be the mega winner in in the year 2030. Like, what is it that if you bought it today, it would be the equivalent of buying Amazon in 1999? We don't know that. And we know enough to know that we cannot know that. One final thing, though, uh, that I would say about that on that same topic is I've heard people justify going into actively managed funds by saying, yeah, but this particular fund manager is great. The thing that they don't know yet is that picking a fund manager is itself a skill. Mm. So if they are not skilled at the skill of picking fund managers, then how can, how can they possibly say person A is better than person B? I like the fact that it's something that's so simple that it can just let you go back to an enjoying life too. Right. Because we don't need to be thinking about which hot stock is going to be next. And if you dedicate your life to that, there's so much more to do in life than, than that. So that's why I like index funds too. And I'm glad we were able to talk about it today because hopefully this will help Beth as she's making some choices about her portfolio and even outside of her 401k, if she decides to do an IRA or an HSA or something like that to, to save for the future, this could be a great option to consider. So Paula, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. So one question I had for you, what is going on with the Afford Anything podcast? What are you guys up to lately? What are your conversations that you're having? Tell me all about it. So the Afford Anything podcast, which I've hosted for a number of years, the concept of the podcast is you can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else. And so we talk a lot about decision-making, opportunity costs. We talk about how to think through your choices, how to make sure that you are living in a way that is aligned with your priorities. Every other episode, I answer questions that come in from our community. On the episodes in between, when I interview guests, some of the more recent episodes, we're talking to a financial psychologist about the psychology of money and 
trauma around money, ways that we trip ourselves up, ways that we fool ourselves. I'm talking to a retirement researcher, one of the few professors who specializes in retirement planning as an academic field. And that's a fairly small, fairly new academic field. I have interviews in which I talk to people about how to form better habits, time management, happiness, entrepreneurship. So we we really span the gamut. Now I'm also doing a special series right now called PSA Thursday, where I give bare bones, stripped down, short episodes that are topic specific to things that relate to managing money and work and life during a pandemic. So I've done PSA Thursday episodes about the CARES Act, which is the act that Congress passed at the beginning of the pandemic and how that affects student loans. I've done an episode on productivity tips if you suddenly find yourself working from home for the first time. I've done an episode on donor advised funds because this is a particularly important time to be donating money and giving uh, to the best of your ability to do so. So all of those topics and more are available at the Afford Anything podcast. Excellent. And you guys can go to affordanything.com or just type in afford anything in your favorite podcast player. You're listening to this podcast right now. Just type it in afford anything. You guys will love the show. Paula, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 
2024. MarriageKidsAndMoney.com slash Tello. Perhaps you've heard me sing the praises of index funds on the show before, but you're not really sure what they are and how to get started with them. Well, I've got an expert to share why they're so effective and so simple. Jeremy Schneider is our guest today. After starting an internet company in college and selling it at the age of 34 for over $5 million and retiring at 36, Jeremy has dedicated his life to teaching personal finance. He founded Personal Finance Club, a community of champions of the individual investor who help further financial education. When Jeremy isn't helping others win with money, he likes to play beach volleyball in sunny California. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Hey, thanks, Andy. That was a really nice intro. That's like my life story in 20 seconds. In 20 seconds. Isn't that something just to sum somebody's life up in just a short amount of time? Hopefully I did okay. (laughs) Yeah, very flattering. Very cool. Very cool. Let's help people out with index funds. Can you tell us what an index fund is? Yes. I love index funds. I love talking about it. It's like the most boring topic and it's so boring, but so great. So basically there's a few ways to build wealth. You basically buy things that go up in value and provide income. One of those things that you can buy to build wealth is a stock, which is basically a share of a part of a company, like a piece of a company. And so for example, you could buy a share of Apple stock and then that would give you like one piece, like one tiny little piece of the Apple company. And then you're as an owner of that company, you're due a share of those profits and the share of the value of that company as it hopefully goes up in value over time as they sell their products and stuff. And so I think that's basically the stock market. You can buy and sell these shares of stocks. But that leads to a very difficult question, which is which stocks do you buy? And it turns out that's basically a near impossible question to correctly answer because the stock market is very efficient because all of the information of the world, sum total of human knowledge is constantly being priced into the stock market. So if you're trying to pick and choose stocks, you basically are signing up for spending a lot of time doing research or just gambling and then not really having a higher expected value than the sum total of the U.S. stock market. So enter... That was my long-winded way of uh, foreshadowing here. Enter the almighty index fund. An index fund is just a very simple way to basically buy all the stocks. And index funds were introduced in 1975 by Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. At the time, that was kind of a crazy idea because his, you know, his compatriots who were stock pickers and stock traders, they said, Jack, you're crazy. Why would you buy the bad stocks? And he said, since the market's efficient, the best way to return as much value to the individual investor as possible is to eliminate all the costs associated with picking stocks and day trading and all this stuff. So you can basically just buy all the stocks, you mitigate, you diversify away all risk of owning individual stocks, and then you maximize your own gains by guaranteeing yourself your fair share of the stock market. So yeah, it's just basically a big bucket of all the stocks. And it's also what's called market cap weighted. So you have the most of the biggest stock, the second most of the second stock. So I picture like a long bar chart with like Apple and Amazon and Facebook and you know, all the big companies at the at the big end. And then there's like this long tail of all like the, you know, several thousands of stocks in the stock market. That's what index one is. Oh, I love it. Well, you started off by saying it's a boring conversation. So why do you say that? I mean, it sounds pretty great. You get to own all the stocks. 
it's not that interesting, right? There's no sex appeal. There's no, you know, no one ever became an overnight millionaire by in buying all the stocks, right? People, you know, you, you see the headlines with like GameStop or Bitcoin or, you know, lottery winners or this crazy exciting stuff. These like really rare, really unusual, basically almost entirely lucky circumstances. And as like a casual observer of investing, you are drawn to those stories like, oh, if someone got rich with GameStop, should I be looking for the next GameStop? And the answer is no, you should be guaranteeing yourself your fair share of the total market growth by buying an index fund. But it just doesn't make headlines because just, you know, I, I made a post earlier this year where if you look at the super hot stocks of 2020, like Tesla and the ARK ETFs and, and Netflix and, you know, some of these other hot stocks, they're all down about 20% this year. Meanwhile, index funds are up about 20% this year as, you know, as an index funds have averaged about 10% over the course of, you know, the stock market. And so just, yeah, they just don't make headlines because they just do the same thing each and every day. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of asking that in jest, of course, but I would love for index funds to have that sex appeal. And I don't know, maybe it's conversations like this that'll continue getting us there over time period, Jeremy. But if we talk about as a long-term investor, if you're a long-term investor and you're trying to, you know, secure a safe retirement or set yourself up for an early retirement or something like you did. Talk to us about why index funds beat out individual stocks. So, you know, index funds are made up of individual stocks and on average, they do the same as all the stocks. That's what an index fund does. So if you could like magically buy all the stocks, you know, in proportion to their size of their company, like I described, then you would have essentially created your own index fund. So they don't really beat them, but what they do is they they guarantee you your fair share of all that stock market growth at a very low cost. But what what you do beat is basically the risk-adjusted performance, right? So if I were just to buy three stocks, those three stocks are no more likely or no less likely than any other three stocks to outperform the stock market because the market's efficient. We can't know which stocks are going to outperform looking forward. So if I just bought three stocks, what I've done is I've given myself the same expected return. I expect those three stocks to perform about the same as the total market since we can't know that they're going to outperform. But I've endured much higher risk and volatility. You know, if one of those three stocks goes out of business, for example, you know, sometimes companies go out of business. In fact, we are both from Southeast Michigan and I lived in Ann Arbor for 12 years and there's this big, beautiful bookstore that started in Ann Arbor called Borders Books. Huge company, national presence, hugely profitable. And then, you know, the internet kind of came around and Borders was not agile enough and they went out of business. And so if Borders was one of the three stocks I owned, a third of my portfolio would go to zero. Right. And so when you own individual stocks, you're basically just exposing yourself to this risk of individual stock ownership without a higher expected return. And in investing, if you're accepting more risk and not getting a higher expected return, that's a bad deal. So that's why I don't own individual stocks. Got it. I mean, it sounds like you could be successful with individual stocks if you paid a lot of attention to what was going on on a daily basis. Would you agree? I wouldn't agree with that. I wouldn't say that the amount of attention you pay has any impact on how likely those stocks are to perform. You know, I think that, you know, they've, they've even done studies. People, you know, there are people whose lives are based on picking and choosing individual stocks. You know, they're mutual fund managers. They will take your money. They choose the stocks for you. you they return the gains back to you minus their fees. Their entire purpose of being is to like read the Wall Street Journal front to back every day, like know the CEOs, like do the analysis, do the, understand all the 
cap tables and the market or the cash flows and the EBITDA and like everything that to do with these stocks. And the studies show that they're no better than random at picking stocks. And so I, you know, I, when people say, oh, you got to do a lot of work to, to get to beat the stock market, like I, I basically disagree with that because everybody is doing that work. And so if you also do that work, you're just competing on this like level playing field where you could just buy the entire playing field and not do the work. I love the Bogle quote, don't find the needle in the haystack, just buy the haystack. It just sort of sums it all up and it just keeps things simple. So as far as simplicity, I guess my point in that question is a lot of the folks that listen to our show are busy parents or they're busy folks in their community or they want to be a part of other things besides you know looking at the stock ticker every day. So when you think about solutions like index funds, it has almost a set it and forget it kind of methodology. Would you agree? Definitely. In fact, this is one of my favorite statistics. I can't actually verify whether or not it's true. I would love to just be one of those people who like spouts things and doesn't know it's true. But <laughs> I'm going to tell you what it is because I believe it to be true in my heart, even if I can't find a source. So the, there's this rumor that I can't find at Fidelity's website, but that Fidelity did a study that looked at the most successful investors. And they were trying to find the demographic of like which successful, which investors of theirs are the most successful. Is it based on education, based on age, based on location, based on their experience based on their past performance, like all these different things that could impact how good you are at picking stocks. They found that their most investor, sorry, their most successful investors were a tie between dead people and people who forgot they had an account. And it just goes to show that like the set it and forget it mentality isn't just like a convenience, although it is convenient, it's literally better investing because all of that guessing like, oh, the, the stock market's going to have a bad, inflation's coming, oh, I heard the stock's good, like all that's guessing. And when you're trading is more likely to hurt you than help you because there are other, you know, there are algorithmic traders in the market that have, you know, PhD computer science majors who are writing algorithms to like make trades in a thousandth of a second. And when, when humans have this gut instinct, there's inflation coming, you know, they already have made those trades and you're basically getting hurt by trading anything inside your portfolio. So just putting money into your investments, setting it automatically and leaving it for long periods of time is how you optimally invest. Well, let's talk about that specific question we talked about at the top of the show. How can we become a millionaire through index fund investing? And it sounds like your first step is start. And then maybe the second step is don't do anything after that. (laughs) What, What else would we add to this equation? I mean, you're smiling and laughing as you said, but like, it's really true. And this is like, you know, my entire purpose of being is just basically letting people know that this simple approach is actually the most optimal. And so I'm a nerd. One of the things I do is like pour over stock market data, historical stock market data. And so one of the things I did is I downloaded the last 150 years of the U.S. stock market data. And I looked at how much money do you need to invest to become a millionaire? And there's basically no date in history in which you could start investing where $250 a month would not make you a millionaire over the course of 40 years. The average, so if you put in 250 bucks a month into an S&P 500 index fund and just set it, you know, on day one, you set an automatic contribution. 40 years later, you'd have on average 1.9 million. The worst that ever performed, I think, was actually right at the bottom of the financial crisis in 2008. And you have like 1.2 million. Although if you held it for a few more years, you'd have like 3 million. And then the best it performed was actually the peak of the dot-com or the dot-com boom, which was like 3 million. And so, you know, no matter when you start and stop, just 250 bucks a month turns you into 
generally a millionaire, a multimillionaire over the course of 40 years. That that's how to become a millionaire by index fund. And you know, I'm talking about 250 bucks a month. If you want to have 10 million bucks, you can do 2,500 bucks a month. If you can, you know, swing that. It's as simple of a math problem as you're describing, and it just takes time. And then talk to us about compound interest. Well, why is that so powerful in this equation? So compound interest is basically the magic that makes this happen. So, and the, the magic takes time. And, you know, no one wants to hear that. And I know everyone wants to get rich quick, but the problem is there, there is no get rich quick. There's like get rich slow or stay broke forever. And when you, when you accept those are your two options, get rich slow actually is pretty great. You know, the lottery winners and the super rare Bitcoin, you know, like the thing that those, those things that make story like or headline news, it's because they're exceedingly rare and they're not reproducible, right? Like they're just lucky. It's just like winning the lottery. You know, just because someone wins a lottery doesn't mean you should win the lottery. You should play the lottery. In fact, like lottery players are, overall very broke people who don't understand math well. So compound interest to answer your question. So basically, but it takes time. So like, let's say you're putting 500 bucks a month away. That's actually the 500 bucks a month is 6,000 bucks a year. That is the maximum you could put into a Roth IRA. As it turns out in your first year of putting 6,000 bucks away, if you get 10% rate of return on that, you would make 600 bucks. So 6,000 bucks invested is 600 bucks. So that's not that exciting. You know, free 600 bucks isn't bad. At the end of the year, you have 6,600 bucks. But let's look at what happens in year number two. In year number two, if you do the same thing, you put away another 6,000 bucks. You actually make 600 bucks from your interest from the money you put away that year. But you make, you make 600 more bucks from the interest on the money you put away last year. That money that was just sitting there from last year doing nothing pays you again. And then... This is where the magic happens. That 600 bucks that you made in interest from last year, remember that interest? You get another 10% of that, which is 60 bucks. So in year number two, you actually get 1,260 bucks in interest. And because it's the interest from this year, plus the interest in last year, plus the interest on the interest from last year. And so that, that word compound means the growth turns into growth, turns into more growth. So, so your money is making money but the money that your money made is making money. And so it's a snowball effect. And if you continue that forward, after 10 years, you have, I think, about 100,000 bucks. And then after 40 years, you have about 2.9 million bucks. And so early on, most of your wealth is from what you're putting in. But the longer that you stick with it, the more that snowball effect happens and the bigger the snowball gets and the more of your wealth comes from the growth of the growth. I love it. It's an easy math problem. It makes sense. You put it into a calculator, you can see the magic that happens. Where are some pitfalls for investors that are going to mess this up? Obviously, you, you set it and you, you do this magical compounding interest you're talking about here. Where can we mess up as investors? There's unfortunately... The math I'm telling you about is very simple. Like you said, you can put into an, into a compound growth calculator, but like it's a little bit complicated to like click the buttons on the websites for the first time. You know, if you go to Fidelity, for example, a big brokerage, and you want to invest, there's like a lot of buttons. And you know, and I, I like robo advisors for this reasons, things like Betterment and Wealthfront, where they basically make it super easy. And I like robo advisors. You know, they charge a small fee, and I'm against fees, but they they make it super easy. But you know, the pitfalls like let's say you go to Fidelity, which is what you know where I have most of my money in a very typical brokerage. You can go put your money into an investment account, and the the number one mistake I see from new investors is not understanding the difference between the account and the investment inside of the account. And so when you put money into a savings account, for example, you're done. The cash just sits there, you get interest just for it being in a savings account. But if you put money into a brokerage account, 
that's an account they use to invest. If you don't, the money again just sits there. It doesn't actually grow like you want to. And so you have to take the second step of after your contribution of the money, you have to click buy on this website and buy an index fund, right? And you know, if you just woke up today and never invested before, and you're hearing about this for this, for, for this first time, and you just try to go to the website and do it without any experience whatsoever, it's going to be hard to figure out what button to click, unfortunately. Like, I'm sorry, I apologize for the state of the world, you know? And so you basically have, you know, two options. One, you can spend like a couple of hours maybe learning, you know, go watch some YouTube vids or like read a book on investing or find which buttons to click or whatever. And then you can learn like what's an index fund, how to, how to buy one, how to click those buttons. Or we can go to a robo-advisor like Betterment or Wealthfront, which make it a lot easier. Those are the main pitfalls in terms of at least getting started. And then, once you're an investor, I'd say the main pitfalls are basically that every human instinct that we have about investing is wrong. You know, humans have evolved for, you know, whatever, thousands of years or millennia or whatever to become these like this very advanced species. And we have like great things like the fight or flight response to help us you know, protect ourselves if we hear a lion coming around the corner or something. But this is not good in the stock market, right? So for example, just over a year ago, we experienced one of the worst, you know, stock market crashes in the history of the US. I think it was the seventh biggest crash in the last hundred years. The stock market crashed about 30% or 34%, I think. And this was right at the beginning of the, you know, COVID pandemic, of course. And if our fight or flight response, if we, like, let's say we had a million dollars invested and we see our million dollars turn to $660,000 in the course of six weeks, your fight or flight response tells you to do something. Like, don't just sit there and die, do something. But it turns out investing, the exact wrong thing to do is to do anything. The right thing to do is to accept that you don't know if it's going to drop another 30% or if it's going to rebound. And either way, if you're making trades, you're way more likely to hurt yourself than help yourself. And, you know, those types of things called timing the market, trying to get in or out of the market. So that's another pitfall. Um, um, and so, you know, to finish that story about the COVID crash, like, yeah, my net worth today is about 4.2 million. A year ago, I think it was about 3.8 million or something. And I had several days in March of 2020 where I would log in and see my market, my, my account was down like over $100,000. Like I, I lost, you know, $100,000 in a day, several, like four days, I think in, in March. But I did nothing. You can like go look at my Instagram and look at all the data posts. I literally did nothing, made no trades, did nothing. And then it turns out we had a very quick recovery on this one and it bounced back. And now I have like, you know, my net worth is even higher, but that's the correct thing. So yeah, get your money invested, make sure it's well invested in index funds with low fees and then leave it alone. That's how you optimally invest. Talk to us about how other factors can float into that. You know, if you want to decrease the amount of time that it takes you to get there, what other ways could you do that? I mean, that's a great question. And I get that question all the time, which is, you know, I don't want to invest for 40 years to become wealthy. And, you know, I have a few answers to that. First, like the whole, the whole point of money, in my opinion, the whole point of life, you kind of have to get a little bit like ephemeral or whatever, psych or philosophical is, is to, to be happy and to help people. I think that's the point of life. And if you spend every single dollar to your name every single day of your life, I don't think it serves those two goals. And, you know, I think having a plan, which is, you know, spending most of your money and saving a little bit, 
makes you wealthy later. And it also makes you happier today. Like I've had weekends of my life where I, you know, I'm in Vegas or something and, you know, you're like, you go to a club and you come back and you just burned $500 somehow. I mean, I don't know if I've ever burned $500 at a club, but yeah, I'm sure someone has like, I mean, I definitely heard these stories about thousands of dollars of bills, you know, or, or you just like, you know, you know, buy a too expensive meal or you just waste a lot of money and you come back and you're, you spend every dollar name and you're broke. Like, I don't really feel happy after that. Like, I feel like I feel pretty bad about myself, frankly, you know, and I'm definitely not happy later. And so when I'm talking about this 40 year thing, the, the message isn't like hate your life for 40 years and then like, you know, celebrate at the end. That's the opposite. The, the message is like, you know, optimize your entire life for happiness, which is you're happier now because you have a plan and you know that you're living within your means and you're, you're going to have a long-term like good outcome and then you're happier later. And you can kind of have like slow, you know, I think, happiness also comes from like feeling movement. It's kind of like if you're in a plane going 500 miles an hour, you don't feel the acceleration. But if you're like in a car going from zero to 60, it feels really fast as you accelerate. So like, I like to experience that acceleration over time because if you are 22 years old and you're like, all right, I'm going to get into debt up to my eyeballs and buy a Lamborghini or buy a BMW and, you know, put all this on credit cards, like, you know, then what later, you know, then you just, are in debt the rest of your life. So yeah. And the other thing I'd say is like, yeah, if you don't want to invest for 30 or 40 years to become like financially independent, you're definitely not going to want to work for 60 years, right? Like that, that's the other alternative is just work forever. I mean, if you want to work forever and then, you know, be a Walmart reader when you're 80 and push, push carts out in the parking lot, like you're, you know, you're welcome to like, that's your life, not my life, but definitely becoming rich over time is definitely better than never becoming rich. Let's talk about your story a little bit. I understand entrepreneurship was a big part of your millionaire success early on in life. So tell us how that came to be and how you did that. Yeah, that's very fair. After I just got done saying, you know, getting wealthy takes time. I'm talking about how I did it slightly faster. Although even my story, it took, you know, well over a decade, right? And so, yeah, I I started an internet company when I was in college, basically my last year of college. And I sold at the age of 34 for just over $5 million. But that was 12 years. And that was 12 years of me basically doing exactly what I'm preaching now, which was I, was I was living way below my means. The most I ever paid myself at that internet company was $36,000 a year. And that wasn't just like some like clever tax thing, like the way Mark Zuckerberg pays himself $1 or something like that. Like that was literally like, that's all the money I took out of the company was $36,000 a year. That was living in high cost of living San Diego. And then I was hiring people. Like I, you know, we had seven employees, including myself when I sold the company. And most of those employees were like software engineers. A lot of them were making six figures. And so I was paying these people really well. But I was doing it because I was trying to aggressively grow, right? And so had I, you know, and in college, I turned down a job offer from Microsoft to go be a software engineer for Microsoft. Had I taken that job offer from Microsoft, lived on that same exact $36,000 a year and just poured money into an index fund, my outcome would have been pretty darn similar. I think I ended up a little bit better because I did like, you know, take the risk of starting a company and, and got the reward. But still, that time was you know, 12 years between when I started my company and when I sold it. And that time was a grind. And for years, like the first three years, I basically was making like no, like the company was making virtually no money. And I was just grinding. I was trying to figure it out and I wasn't doing an especially great job, but you know, the, the thing that I could credit young Jeremy with was just persistence or bullheadedness or stubbornness or whatever, because I just didn't give up. And so, yeah, I'm a huge fan of entrepreneurship, but even entrepreneurship, it takes time. It's a grind. And still you have to, you know, still have to follow those rules. Like if I was borrowing a bunch of money and like running up credit cards and saying, takes money to spend money to make money, I think I would have 
would have gone out of business, right? I was trying to like spend less of my money to make both per, both personally and with the business, and you know, stay persistent over time. I love it. Well, I mean, to your point, the combination of maybe decreasing that time frame from forty years is setting and forgetting the index funds. On the other side, what can you do to increase your income? What can you do to do great at work or grow your own business. So maybe it's a hybrid of both those things, which you did in your life as well. Would you agree? Totally. And you know, the 40 year thing, like there's nothing, it doesn't need to be 40 years. Like I, I use 40 years just because that's like the typical ish career length from like 25 to 65 or so. And if you invest half of your income, you're talking about growing your income. So there's like how much you make, how much you spend. The gap between those two things is like your wealth building fire hose, right? The bigger you make that gap, either by decreasing expenses or increasing income, the faster you're going to get there. So if you, if you, of, of the money you take home, if you spend half of it and then you invest half of it, 15 years later, you will have, your investments will have grown to be large enough to live on those investments forever, right? So, and you know, that doesn't work for everyone. If you're making minimum wage and you have two kids, like you can't live on half your income. Like that's basically impossible in the United States. Like, but if you're making like 80,000, are there some people who make 40,000 live? Yep. Like there are, if you're making a hundred thousand, are there some people who make 50,000 and live successful lives? Yep. And so, you know, you get to choose. And if you know, if you're making 60,000, you pick up a side hustle for, you know, 200 bucks a week, that's 800 bucks a month. That's 10,000 bucks a year. Is that going to get you a lot closer to, you know, that 50% savings rate? Definitely. And so, yeah, that, Decreasing of income or decreasing of expenses, increasing of income, getting more money to invest, that's how you get there faster. But you know, looking for shortcuts like day trading GameStop, in my opinion, is not likely to get you there faster. Well, let's talk about what happened after the company sold. What did you do with that extra money? I guess that's a big moment in your life being like, am I going to double down on another business? Am I going to get into real estate, stock market? What did you do? Yeah, so I was 34 and I yeah sold my company and had... Five million bucks. My share was about three million bucks. I sent a million dollars because I owned seventy percent of the company at that time. I sent a million dollars to the state of California and federal governments, so I was left with two million bucks. So five million turns to two pretty quick. And I actually started reading like basically every book I could on investing to try to figure out how not to blow this money. And I had been kind of like a casual investor for like my you know young adulthood, and so I like bought some stocks, bought some mutual funds. Didn't really know why or what I was buying. I started reading all these books and I was like, oh, the market's efficient. All that guessing I'm doing is nonsense. I should just be buying the total market, minimizing my fees. And I also knew that timing the market was a fool's errand. And so, yeah, there's one day in 2015 where I basically just dumped all of my, dumped like, you know, about $2 million into the stock market in one day because I knew that, you know, I could have dollar cost averaged it in. That'd be, that would have been fine, but that would have, you know, not been a more likely scenario for success. I just, one day, it's kind of crazy too. Cause like I was like, you know, a few months earlier, I was living on $36,000 a year. And so like, I remember pouring over decisions for a hundred dollars. Like I remember I bought a set of speakers that were a hundred dollars, you know, in 2014 or something. And I just like, you know, for weeks I was like, Oh, is this a waste of money? Do I really need the speakers? And then, you know, but then based on the, the math in 2015, I, went to Fidelity and I clicked buy with millions of dollars into these index funds and I just left them. And, you know, actually it went down for a while. You know, if, if you can look at like between like, I think it was like May and December of 2015, the market went down and like, you know, I think I lost, you know, whatever, five or 10% or something. It wasn't a huge crash. just kind of like a little, little drawback, but, but I knew the math and then I've stuck it out. And of course now I'm have a lot more money, more than double. 
Well, that's incredible. What does your future look like right now, Jeremy? You've got a growing business right now and you've got an incredible net worth at your age. So what are your personal goals as you look forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that really boils down to like those two things I like for in life, which is to be happy and help people. And, you know, the thing that I like doing is just helping people with personal finance. And so, yeah, in 2019, I started an Instagram account where I was just, you know, actually I was dating a girl at the time and she asked, she asked me what you just asked me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what are you doing with your life? And not in, not in like a negative way. She wasn't like criticizing me, but she's like, you have this like endless opportunity. And I said, I said, the thing I would like to do is basically help people with personal finance. I'd like to have like either podcast like you do or like a Netflix show or whatever. And so then I, and she was like, that's not crazy. Like, you know, this stuff really well and you're, you know, smart guy that knows how to start stuff. And so that's what I did. I started personal finance club and I started an Instagram account and it wasn't even necessarily, in fact, it definitely wasn't designed to be a business. It was just designed to like be this rich guy's hobby where I could, and by the way, I'm not that rich, but I guess early retirees hobby where I could just share my knowledge and help people. And it's just what I love doing. Yeah. And that's what I've done to this day and actually kind of did morph into a business two years later when I finally started deciding to sell something. That's incredible. Well, you call it boring, but how many followers do you have on Instagram right now? I think I have 260 or 270,000 followers. So I don't think they find it boring, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) They think it's, uh, there's like, there's like 14 year olds who like, you know, who knows what they like pull pranks on people and have 20 million followers. So, um, it's just, it's a tiny drop in the ocean of, you know, just a drop of people who are like, Hey, boring might actually be successful. But yeah, I, I do try to make it simple and interesting. Oh, that's great. Well, I, I think it's the equivalent of being called a nerd now because like, you know, maybe in the eighties nerd was like, Oh, that's like a burn, man. It's like now nerd and boring is kind of like, it works evidently. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've definitely seen both sides of that nerd coin because I was a nerd. I was born in the 80s. So I was definitely a nerd in the 80s and 90s and I'm still a nerd today. But yeah, but it's a, it's a little bit cooler when you're 40 and it you have some success behind you. Absolutely. Well, I completely agree. And I've been following Jeremy on his Instagram account for quite a while now. And, and the information he's sharing not only is extremely helpful, but he's putting it together in a really fantastic way where, you know, it's these great graphics and it kind of just helps you understand this stuff is not rocket science. This stuff is simple and dare I say it, quite effective. Let's talk to the person who's listening right now and they're saying, okay, I want to get started with index fund investing. You talked about Fidelity. Are there other firms or brokerage partners that you think are the best way to go? Where should they go to get started today? Yeah, you know, there's not one best place. You know, all these brokerages are just vessels to the same exact wealth building tool of the U.S. stock market. So if you buy an index fund through Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab, you're buying the same stocks. You're still buying Apple, Amazon, Facebook, you know, ExxonMobil, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so there's not like a best one. It really boils down to like, you know, user experience and customer support and things like that. You know, I have to give a shout to Vanguard because they basically like created or popularized the index fund. They still have a relatively unique business model, which is they are their funds are owned by the investors. So they don't have like external owners for which they're trying to increase fees to basically, you know, lead the investors, you know, the individual investors dry. And so if anyone recommends Vanguard, I like wholeheartedly support that. That said, like Vanguard doesn't have the best user experience in my opinion. Like their website is a little bit old fashioned. Fidelity is a little bit better. I do like the new players like Betterment and Wealthfront, which are these robo advisors, which again, are just are a vessel to the exact same wealth building tool. You know, Betterment and Wealthfront 
just do index funds for you automatically. Like, you know, the index funds aren't my idea. That's not my unique, you know, view of the world or whatever. It's it's just the optimal way to do it. And so these robo advisors have basically made a way where you can just put your money in and they, they basically choose your index funds for you. It's not that much help. You know, it, it replaces about, you know, a few hours of learning in my experience. But if you don't want to do that a few hours of learning or you know enough to know that like that is good enough to help you know it's a good service for the money or whatever then yeah go for it um yeah so i'd go to one of those sites and start you know buying an index fund well i understand you have an online course that helps people get started with index fund investing where can somebody access that yeah, you know, like I hate selling something, and in fact, I didn't ever plan on selling something because I don't want to like be giving sales pitches. And so, for two years, I was running this Instagram and just, you know, effusively helping people as much as I could. And I'd constantly get this question, which is like, "How do I buy an index fund?" Which I have posted several times. It's on my Instagram. It's on my website. But you know, I think people just really want like, "What's the A to Z? Walk me through." And so I, so I created a course, and I was going to give the course away for free. I was like, "All right, here's the course, A to Z." But then the business person in me knows that like people don't value things that are free. And if you gave someone a free course, they would like not finish it or they'd bomb out of it. And so I was like, all right, what if I charged a nominal amount for this course? Then if people buy into it, then they would feel the need to finish it because that's how, you know, irrational, you know, economics work or whatever. And then also I could use that money to like, you know, not have this being like a money. Like I was losing money essentially because I was paying for you know, all sorts of stuff to run the site and everything. I mean, also I could hire someone, which I've done now. So now I was two of us making content, stuff like that. So yeah, there's a course, it's 79 bucks. You know, normally these courses are like a thousand or 300. I try to make it like really a modest cost. Um, and we'll, you know, probably save you hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, fees and stuff. Yeah. It's on my website, personalfinanceclub.com or on my Instagram, Personal Finance Club. I'm a pretty easy dude to find on the internet. Excellent. Well, you guys will not regret following him on Instagram and consuming all this great knowledge that he has. So everybody, go check him out, Personal Finance Club. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Andy. As a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only, my friends. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabbitt for editing today's show, to Weird Digital Marketing for their support on Instagram and YouTube, and to Mandy Burt for her stellar writing on our blog. Thank you all so much for your support. I could not do this without you. Before we go for the day, I want to encourage you to send in any questions you have via voicemail to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail. My goal with this show is to support as many of you as possible. Your real life, real people, real concern questions are what makes this show great. So please send them in at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail. I'll do my best to tackle as many as I can marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail. Keep it to 90 seconds or less. Introduce yourself, provide as much information as possible, financial information that is, and you can definitely remain anonymous if you're concerned about that. You know, something like Sean from North Dakota, Allison from Texas, Kevin from Indiana, you get the idea. marriagekidsandmoney.com slash voicemail. I hope to hear from you. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from John Bogle. The winning formula for success in investing is owning the entire stock market through an index fund and then doing nothing. Just stay the course. Here's to staying the course, my friends. Carpe diem. 